Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, during this International Infection Prevention Week, find out some of the ways you can keep from getting sick. Then there will be a whole lot of shaking going on today during a statewide earthquake drill. And we'll hear how the opioid crisis in the Mississippi Delta is growing. But we're past that. It's time to talk about it. Our kids are dying. And in our book club, a son talks about a book his father wrote more than 40 years ago that spoke of the Jim Crow South, the civil rights movement, and a painful relationship with his brother, Will Campbell's brother to a dragonfly. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than 300,000 Mississippians are slated to join the state's emergency management agency for its annual shakeout earthquake drill today. This morning at 1030, people will drop to the ground, take cover under a sturdy table or desk, protect their heads and necks and hold on. Greg Flynn is with MEMA. Greg Flynn is MEMA External Affairs Director. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier, Mississippi is known for tornadoes, hurricanes and flooding, but earthquakes or a real threat that requires preparation. It's so important. We do this uh, in conjunction with the Central United States uh, Earthquake Consortium every October uh, to raise awareness for the hazards of an earthquake. And uh, at 1018, later this morning, uh, we want everybody in Mississippi to practice the drop to the ground, take cover under a sturdy table, and hold on until shaking stops, because earthquakes are a threat here in Mississippi, believe it or not. We really don't think about earthquakes here. Has there been one recently? We've had small ones uh, recently. Uh, You know, they happen up in the Tupelo area. They'll happen up around northwest Mississippi. And I know a lot of folks in the Jackson metro area will recall uh, a couple in Madison County uh, a year or two ago. So they do happen. Most of the time, they're very light. But we do have the possibility of sitting on that big New Madrid seismic zone up in the northwest part of the state to see a major earthquake, much as we did back in 1811 and 1812. Not that any of us are around to remember that, but uh, they, they can and will happen. Is there one that's predicted or is there like, oh, we may have one in, within 10 years or anything like that? Well, that's the one thing that really uh, worries us the most as emergency managers, because this is the one hazard that is unpredictable. 
scientists, for as great as they are, have no ability to predict when an earthquake is going to happen. So when it happens, it's going to be a no-notice event. And we want people to just be aware that it is a possibility, because at first you're going to say, what is that? But as soon as you realize, oh my gosh, that's probably an earthquake, we want you to get to a uh, safe spot and know what to do. As we say, um, don't freak out practice the shakeout. Has this been proven to work in areas where there are earthquakes that are very severe? Absolutely. Uh, This was taken from out west in California. This has been the standard protection, and it has worked uh, for their earthquakes in the past. You just want to get low to the ground, get under something sturdy, and then hold on. And the most important thing is because it's protecting your head. So you don't want to be standing up and have, you know, a light fixture, a ceiling fan. In your bed, you may have uh, artwork or something over the top of your bed on the wall. You know, you just want to be able to protect yourself in that initial phase. Any idea how many people participate in this with MEMA? Uh, Well, right now we have 333,000 people in Mississippi registered for the shakeout. We're hoping that that's a lot more, you know, people that haven't officially registered on the shakeout uh, website. But here in the central United States, the New Madrid seismic zone, uh, there are already 2.8 million people uh, registered. What if you're in your car? Is there any protection or any advice? You know, if you're in your in your vehicle, you know, get a away from power lines. If if the ground is shaking, you know, pull off to a side where you're away from power lines. That's one of those times where do not pull under an overpass uh, because you don't want any of that cracking and crumbling and perhaps falling on your car. Just try to get out to a wide open area. Um, You know, and again, if you're not in your car, but you happen to be out uh, just in the open, you know, get away from trees, get away from power lines, anything that can fall Uh, that would be able to injure you. Just imagine it tipping over and just get as wide open a space as you possibly can. Well, Greg Flynn with Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, we appreciate your time talking about this issue. All right. Thank you, Des. In other news, a Mississippi doctor is working to educate healthcare workers and the public about preventing the spread of infectious diseases. Bhageshri Navakili is with University of Mississippi Medical Center. She says every year nationwide, 99,000 people die from illnesses associated with infections. Navakili tells MPB's Desiree Frazier hand washing greatly reduces the spread of diseases. Any infection, healthcare-associated or community-onset infection, uh, can result in increase in healthcare costs as well as patient harm. Hence, uh, this Infection Prevention Week is an effort to raise public awareness as well as awareness among healthcare professionals, patients, families, visitors on how to prevent infections. Uh, and healthcare-associated infections are currently actually uh, the leading cause for death in the hospital, and uh, we, uh, it's estimated per CDC that one in every 25 hospitalized patients can get an infection, and around 75,000 of them uh, can die from these infections. Uh, Most of these infections are preventable, and hence uh, we are emphasizing this uh, knowledge to spread among everyone who is uh, in this community as well as in the institution so that we can prevent these infections. How is it that you go in the hospital to be treated and to uh, be made whole and well again, and you end up with an infection? 
So uh, there are certain practices which we uh, promote in the hospital to prevent infections. Uh, the number one way to prevent this infection is hand hygiene. Washing your hands with a hand sanitizer uh, or with soap and water will prevent germs from spreading the, from patient to the person. or from So there's people patient. that aren't washing their hands in the hospital. So there is always like there are healthcare professionals. So every day a patient has at least 20 to 25 people who are coming in and out of the patient room, which includes healthcare professionals, which includes their family visitors, uh, and it include, include any staff who is there taking care of the patient. And if even if some of them miss to wash their hands while going in or coming out of the patient room, that increases risk for infection. There are other things which increase risk for infection like medical devices. When they have urinary catheters in place or IV lines in place, so that's why we emphasize uh, to healthcare teams as well as to patients to ask questions that do we need this medical device still in? And if it's not necessary, it needs to be taken out as soon as possible. What are the most serious infections that you find in the hospitals in Mississippi? Uh, most serious infections uh, we have, we monitor uh, infections in the hospital and we have to report them to the CDC, which is National Healthcare Safety Network. And the infections we usually monitor are any central line associated infections, any catheter associated infections like urinary catheter associated infection, uh, the MRSA bloodstream infections. Uh, we have Clostridium difficile. It causes, a, it's a bacteria which can cause really bad diarrhea if you had received antibiotics in the past. So, and surgical site infections. So these are the top common infections and the numbers like the ones which it can vary which uh, infection one infection might go up and down however these five infections are the most important causes of healthcare associated infections and we monitor them and we have multiple strategies to reduce these infection rates. UMMC's Dr. Bagashri Navakili with our Desiree Frazier. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Coming up, we'll hear how the opioid crisis in the Mississippi Delta is growing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today, a reader, tomorrow, a leader is a quote all about the power of reading. And on October 25th, we want you to celebrate that power as we read for the record. Show your support for literacy for every child in Mississippi and take the pledge to read the book, Maybe Something Beautiful, on October 25th. Log on to our website, mpbonline.org, for more information. And on October 25th, let's read for the record. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is seeing a rise in drug overdoses related to the abuse of opioids. In the Mississippi Delta, MPB's Alexandra Watts reports on how communities are responding to this growing problem. Kelly Kennig remembers getting a phone call about her son, Wiley. It's the chief deputy for the Washington County Sheriff's Department calling me. And I answered the phone and he said, Kelly, I just want you to know that we have your son. And I said, is he okay? And he said, he is now. We found him passed out 
in the double-quick parking lot and Leland with a needle sticking out of his arm. He said, thank God you didn't see what I saw. Thank God you didn't see what I saw. Kenig is a public defender in Greenville and familiar with the damage opioid abuse can do. In 2010, Kenick's son Wiley was injured in a boating accident and was prescribed prescription opiates to manage the pain. He became addicted and started stealing pills from a friend. Kenick confronted Wiley, who confirmed her fears. I mean, this was such an amazing, sweet young man, kind and loving, and I had such high goals and dreams. And to think that my child would steal from anyone is like a sucker punch. And I asked him... And he admitted it. And he said, Mom, I have a problem. According to Stand Up Mississippi, a statewide initiative to end the opioid crisis, Mississippi is fifth in the nation for the number of opioid prescriptions written annually per capita. In seven of the 18 Delta counties, there were more opioid prescriptions written than people. Jeff Dunn works at Denton House, a recovery center in Greenwood. He's seen an increase in addiction to prescription pills and heroin, a cheaper, more accessible drug. When I started here 10 years ago, one out of every 10 clients may have had opioid in their addiction. Now we've seen it increase to about 60% of who we take in. Naloxone, which is sold under the brand name Narcan, can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. In 2017, Narcan was administered more than 2,000 times in the state, according to the Mississippi Board of Pharmacy. While the drug saves lives, it's not free. Through grants provided by the Stand Up Mississippi Initiative, Narcan is made available to local law enforcement at no cost. Greenwood Police Chief Ray Moore says the drug has been a life-saving tool. Because at times, law enforcement are the first ones on the scene. We're the first ones that receive the call. I know on a couple of calls my officers have been on, the individuals were completely unresponsive. And Narcan was administered, and by the time the ambulance service got there, they were coming back around. According to the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, in 2016, the Delta had the most drug overdose deaths in the state. A year later, the number of deaths statewide almost tripled. Chief Morris says law enforcement in rural areas have less manpower, less funding, and fewer resources compared to big cities. But, he says big or small, cities all around are dealing with the opioid crisis. We deal with exactly the same thing, New York, Los Angeles, uh, any other city. The only thing is we deal with it on just a smaller scale. But Narcan is only a temporary solution to the persisting problem. There is still a need for addiction treatment throughout the Delta. Jeff Dunn, with the Denton House Recovery Center, says he has seen an increase in treatment for other addictive substances. Another drug that has skyrocketed is methamphetamine. And I have seen a lot of opiate addicts come in here that were turned to the meth because it was so cheap. And then, of course, they're addicted to the opiates and the meth. Denton House offers aftercare counseling and support meetings for people in recovery. But for many, treating the addiction is a long process, and it isn't something that is cured with just Narcan or a month in treatment. Kelly Kennick talks about the long recovery process for her son, Wiley. We're into the eighth year now, but he is in drug court now, and we're very hopeful. And so many people are saying, no, not my child. 
And I was there, too, for a long time. But we're past that. It's time to talk about it. Our kids are dying. And while the opioid crisis won't be cured overnight, Kenick hopes changes can be made one conversation at a time. Alexandra Watts, MPB News. In other news, high school dropouts can earn a high school equivalency diploma while gaining skills training that can lead directly to a job through the My Best program. Dr. Andrea Mayfield, executive director of the state's community college board, says all 15 community colleges participate in the program along with employer partners. Mayfield says there are more than 150 occupations in various courses of study and that more than 1,400 students have participated in the program. She tells us more. The program allows any student entry without a high school diploma. I mean, the the program is targeted to students who have not earned a high school diploma or equivalency yet. High school dropout. Is there an age limit? How long can you have dropped out? Anytime. That's the beauty of the program. In fact, most people are already considered your non-traditional student. They're adults. They're adults, but it doesn't matter. If you're a high school dropout, then you are eligible for this program. Now, you're being trained for a specific um, trade, so to speak, but you're also earning your GED? That is correct. As part of my best, this is this is actually a workforce solution is what it is. And as part of the solution, this particular program focuses on preparing people for the high school equivalency while also simultaneously training them for an occupational skill. What difference does it make if someone has their GED as opposed to not having it? Well, when, when we hear the word GED, that is the actual test. That is the actual company. And and we have endorsed several different companies. We endorse the, the GED, the high set, and the task. And then we also have an alternative pathway. So what is that diploma called? I thought it was called a GED. <laughs> it, it's called a high school equivalency. You've had events this week. You have a bunch of events today at the various community colleges. Yes. They're called different things like a festival or a celebration or a homecoming parade. So are you using these particular events to let people know about My Best? This is a success story, and this is a celebration that each community college is showcasing. And they're showcasing the student success as being a participant and a completer of My Best, because now they've made a, a complete difference in their quality of life. They're on the pathway to financial independence, and it's quite remarkable. Dr. Andrea Mayfield. For a list of events, visit mccb.edu and click the My Best link. Tune in tomorrow for more on the My Best program. Coming up in our book club, a son talks about a book his father wrote more than 40 years ago that spoke of the Jim Crow South, the civil rights movement, and a painful relationship with his brother, Will Campbell's Brother to a Dragonfly. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi students are going to the polls this month to participate in a mock election for the upcoming Senate race. Teachers, there's still time to register students for the Promote the Vote initiative, which provides a variety of fun ways to learn about civic engagement. If your school or class is already registered, let the voting begin. Deadline for submitting votes is October 26th. More information at mpbonline.org. Brought to you by MPB and the Mississippi Secretary of State. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Today's book club features a new reprint of the late Will Campbell's book, Brother to a Dragonfly. Originally written 41 years ago, it was first released 25 years later with a foreword by Jimmy Carter. This new version, released on the 25th anniversary of its original publication, or actually it's a reprint, a reprint features a foreword written by Congressman John Lewis. It's a story of Campbell's experiences in the Jim Crow South, the civil rights movement, and a painful relationship with his brother. Author Will Campbell's son, Webb Campbell, tells us whether Will grew up witnessing racist behavior around him. That's something that he was exposed to, I think, I venture to say, virtually on a daily basis. His father was... For that day, uh, a relatively enlightened man, his mother was not. Despite you know, many of his siblings and cousins and other relatives witnessing exactly what he witnessed growing up, he took a very different turn. Uh, I think that made a, a deep impression on him. He had a couple of, of elder relatives who I think saw things through a different prism, and they talked about it at some length, and I think that carried with him throughout the rest of his life. It should be noted that Will D. Campbell was a prolific writer, and yet Brother to a Dragonfly is the book that really galvanized a portion of our population. Why do you think that's the case? My father would often uh, refer to himself as a, as a writer of rare books. Brother to a Dragonfly was certainly his most critically acclaimed book, but it, it's not a book that I think in you know, relatively speaking, has, has enjoyed a particularly widespread audience. So, you know, whether it's had a galvanizing effect, you know, perhaps, and I think to the extent it did, it really goes back to, you know, how folks are aligned. And what Daddy tried to do, and I think was successful with the book, was to bear witness to a very critical time in our nation's history, from the mid-50s to the late 60s, obviously, uh, the backdrop being his witness to the civil rights movement, and, and, and intertwined with, with a very, very painful personal story involving his relationship with my Uncle Joe, who died at 46 under very tragic circumstances. There was a deep divide, and, and there may still be, in the country at the time, and you know, the time being 77 when the book came out, on the issue of race. And, and that tends to be a polarizing topic. It certainly was in the 50s and 60s. I think it still was when the book came out in the late 70s, and I think it still is today. As a child, what do you remember? Your father was exposed to death threats. Were you aware of any of that? I was not. The primary time frame when I now realize that was going on was in the 50s, and I was born in 1959. There were certainly threats associated with my father's time at Ole Miss, which was in the mid-50s, 54 to 56. Both my sisters had been born by then, Penny and Bonnie. My mother was a very young mother at the time, and those threats were very real. I don't think that necessarily, or at least directly, played a part in my father's departure. You know, he was the chaplain at Ole Miss at the time. I can't believe that, you know, as a father myself, that it wouldn't have entered into his mindset in terms of just protection of his own family. But this is the way it was. In retrospect, I have enormous appreciation for what I was exposed to growing up, but in the moment, it wouldn't be accurate for me to say that I fully understood it or that I, in fact, fully appreciated it. But there were some tremendous experiences that I, you know, people ask me, 
you know, with some frequency, what was it like to be the kid of, of Will Campbell? And, you know, some of the stories that, that kind of pop in my mind are, are things like, you know, my father was very close friends with Waylon Jennings. And I come home from college and, and daddy says, Waylon wants me to handle the christening of his son's shooter. And do you want to go? I said, sure, I'll go. And we walk into Waylon's house and the first person I see is Muhammad Ali. You know, those types of experiences are, are memorable. But then again, there are a lot of much more mundane, more, more traditional experiences that, that most people have the good fortune to experience with their father. And, you know, that's just hanging out. You know, we were both big baseball fans. I played a little baseball growing up. It was very rare when my dad would miss one of my baseball games. And on that note, let me say that Will Campbell wrote Brother to a Dragonfly 41 years ago. He was a finalist for the National Book Award. He received the National Humanities Medal from President Bill Clinton. The foreword to the book, the 25th anniversary of this book, was written by President Jimmy Carter. And this new reprinted edition of the book, the foreword is written by John Lewis. So certainly a notable man and a notable book, Brother to a Dragonfly. And we've been speaking to Will Campbell's son, Webb Campbell. Thank you so much, Webb. Thank you, Karen. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's MPB's all-new show, AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.